0: Good morning, my name is Shelby Wilson. I'll be reading to you this morning from 1 Corinthians ten twenty-three through 11, 1. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No man should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, Then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? I take part in the meal with thankfulness. Why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the phrase, in the world but not of the world. It's one we hear and say a lot. It's actually just a summary in a way of words that Jesus spoke in a prayer in John 17. In that prayer in John 17, Jesus is praying to his father, saying that he is about to leave us, and he is praying for us as he he leaves us here. Uh, And it's easy to hear that phrase, in the world but not of the world, and think basically what it's saying is, you know, while we happen to be in this world, Father, protect them so that they won't become of the world. Keep them from making those kinds of choices. But when you read the prayer in John 17, the real focus there, I think, is more in the world. It's not we just happen to be here. Jesus is praying to the Father. He's clearly saying, yes, they are not of this world. That because of, because of what Jesus has done for us, because we are new creatures in him, we are no longer of this world. We are foreigners and aliens. And, and I think he's implying there, and God help them not to be of this world in the choices they make. But he's saying that because he's saying, because, Father, I am going to send them into the world. I, right now, am sending them there. And he says, I'm sending them there that others might believe. I'm sending them on a mission. And I I send them on that difficult mission into this world that oftentimes has different values and different beliefs and will not understand them. Father, help them, protect them. Protect them from the evil one, he says. And protect them so that they will not be of this world while they're on mission in it. But again, the real focus is here, is being on mission in it. Well, I think that's the challenge that, in some ways, Paul is addressing in the passage we have today. These Christians in Corinth, these people who have come to know Christ, are new creatures in Christ in Corinth, in this very pluralistic city, in this city known for its many temples to to false gods, this crossroads in the known world of the time, people from all these different belief systems and places coming together in Corinth. They're saying, as we live in this place, we're running into some conflicts we're not sure what to do and one of the things they weren't sure how to handle was what do we do with meat that's been sacrificed to idols to these pagan idols in these temples are we allowed to eat it now that's not an issue that most of us face uh, but I think the principles that Paul's going to lay out applied all of us and for them it was a very important issue it was a it was a central issue to living their life now, if you're looking for a quick, black-and-white, simple answer to that question from Paul, you're not going to get it. He takes at least three chapters to answer that question. In some ways, it starts back in chapter 6, five chapters. He's, he takes a long time to answer that question. He, in some ways, gives a simple answer, but he qualifies it in so many ways, wanting us to think well about how we apply the answer that he's given to real life in this world. In the ancient world, the reason this would have been such a difficulty is because, again, sacrificing meat to idols was just such a part of their life. People were doing it constantly. There were public um, times of sacrifice that everybody joined in to the various temples, and there were private sacrifices that were regularly being made at the temples by people. And when they would make a sacrifice, they would bring an animal for that sacrifice, present it to the priest, and that priest would divide that animal into three parts— One part was burnt on the altar. Uh, The second part would actually go to the priest and it would provide for the priest and for the workers in the temple. And then that third part, if it was a private uh, sacrifice, generally it would be given back to the person who brought it and they would then use that meat as part of a, a celebration or a feast for their family and friends. And if it was a public sacrifice, often then it was given to local authorities who would then sell it in the market that final third. So here's the problem that they faced. Everywhere they went, there was the possibility that they were going to eat meat that had been sacrificed to these idols. If you went to a wedding, it's very likely that meat was meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan idol. If you get invited to someone's home to eat, who's not a follower of Christ, Very good chance that's where that meat came from. Matter of fact, even if they were followers of Christ and they bought that meat in the marketplace, in a city like Corinth, probably most of the meat in the marketplace was meat that had been part of this sacrifice to a pagan idol. They ran into this everywhere they went. And if you are going into the world on a mission that others might believe in Jesus, if you want to be close enough to them, to be a witness to them, and say someone invites you over to their home for dinner... Do you then say, oh, wait a minute, where'd that meat come from? Uh, Was that part of a sacrifice? If if so, I don't want to eat that. That was an obstacle to them connecting to the very people that they wanted to be witnesses to. So their question is, how do we deal with that? What do we do? Do we need to draw that line every time that we face it? Because they're going to face it a lot, right? And it's going to be a problem. Now, again, we don't face those same challenges, Uh, But I think we face similar things, right? We, in a world that often does not share the values and beliefs that we as followers of Christ have, if we want to go into that world on mission for Christ to make him known, that means getting close enough to people to have a witness with people. It means entering this world and entering their lives. And it means we are often going to face challenges of When do we need to separate, and when do we step in, and when is it okay? And you face those all the time, right? We've all faced them. Maybe you get invited to to attend a wedding or be a part of a wedding of an unbelieving friend. And, And you question whether that wedding is a violation of God's design and purpose for marriage. Well, do I join in? Do I participate? Maybe you actually know that this was a relationship that started in an adulterous affair. Do I celebrate that with them? Do I join in and be a part of that? Maybe it's people, two people of the same gender. Maybe it's an unbeliever marrying a believer. What do I do? What are my choices when I'm invited into this? Maybe you work for a company, a large company, as many do, and that company supports causes and purposes that you question, that sometimes you'd even say, I believe those are outside of of what God calls good and right. Does my work in that company support things that I believe are wrong that are even sometimes sinful? How do, I, how do I serve in that company? How do I work with my coworkers? How do I make those choices that sometimes are so messy? When am I actually promoting that which is evil and when is this about drawing close to people who, who don't share the same beliefs I have so that I might present Christ with them? How do I do that? It could be as simple as a friend invites you to a yoga class and you love yoga and exercise and to you it's exercise. And you go with them to a yoga class and suddenly the instructor starts sharing things that seem to imply that in their mind this is about spiritual enlightenment or, or union with divine which seems to be teaching principles that are, are more a Hindu view of yoga. Do I participate? Because I'm not believing any of that. I'm just exercising and stretching. Should I be there? Should I not be there? How do I make those kinds of decisions? It's tough. Or what about if I'm in an event where, again, it's just a normal event, but I know in this event there may almost be an encouragement for people to do things in excess that they shouldn't do. For instance, I'm going to be part of an event, a celebration, where I feel like they're almost encouraging drunkenness. Now, I'm not going to drink to excess. That's not a problem I'm going to have. But should I be a part of this event where that kind of behavior is almost going to seem encouraged as a part of it. Those are tough decisions to make, right? And we could go on with this list for hours of those kind of things. And as soon as we make up our list, new things will start popping out. Because living life in a world that doesn't share our values, that doesn't follow Christ, doesn't see him as Lord of their life, but entering that world on mission for Christ which means getting close enough to have an impact in people's lives, to be heard by them, to, be, to have our lives seen by them and our witness before them. It means being with them. It means being in this world. And that's exactly where Jesus sent us, into this world. It's why he prays for the Father to protect us, because he is saying, yes, there will be challenges as they do that. Now again, I said that his answer spans chapters eight through ten, well, for the sake of time i 'm really going to focus on his wrap up and his wrap up at this kind of begins in verse twenty three of chapter ten. comes back and in some ways sums things up and pulls it all together and And what I want to look for are what are just some of these principles that that Paul is giving us as we face these challenges and make these decisions now i 'm sure you will be frustrated. I'm sure you will come back to me and say, yeah, but those principles didn't give me specific answers for this situation and this situation. That's what principles are. They are guidelines, and we have to then do the hard work of applying them. Uh, But I want to think through some guidelines that I think Paul presents here uh, in this passage. And you may find a different list of guidelines as you go to it, and that's fine. I'd love to hear some of those. And you will find some of these guidelines overlap with others, the ones that I'm presenting. But here are some that I found that I think are important as we begin in 1023. A first principle I found, I think is really a central guiding principle, is that you find in Scripture, and you find here, that biblical morality, biblical right and wrong, is always rooted in relationship. It always has a relational quality to it. As Jesus said when asked uh, which command in the law was greatest, the moral code of the Old Testament, what was his response? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right conduct is loving conduct. Those are bound together. One of the things I say often to the point that those who know me well are probably sick of hearing it, I often say biblical morality always has a face in front of it. And what I mean, doing right is not just right for right's sake. Doing right is always relational in some way. It's about our relationship with God, or it's about our relationship with others, or both. Always relational quality to it. In 1023 and 24, Paul confronts what is... Uh, what seems to be a popular phrase. He mentions it back in chapter 6 also. I have the right to do anything, or in your translation it may say everything is permissible. Now the origin of that, that slogan, that phrase is uncertain. We're not sure where it came from, but it seems the way Paul's addressing it, it was a pretty common one among some of the Christians in Corinth. Everything is permissible. I have the right to do anything, and it And it's possible that they actually took some of Paul's teaching and came to this conclusion. It's possible they took things like what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 where he says that the the believer is released from the law. But, of course, if that's the case, they conveniently forgot the words that just followed that. In Romans 7, Paul says that we are released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, it's not now you're what defines right and wrong for you is just your own desires. You are to be led by the Spirit in the choices you now make. So in 10:23 and 24, Paul qualifies this freedom for them. He writes, "I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good." but the good of others. At the beginning of the discussion, back to the beginning of chapter 8, he says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He argues again that it's not just about knowing the right rules and having the right answer. It is also about how do you lovingly apply those things relationally with others. How do those choices affect your relationship with God and others? That is always part of doing what is right. Doing right is right, there are roles, there are rights and wrongs, but relationship is always part of that decision and process. A second guiding principle, I would say in verse 25 and 26, and this one may not seem so clear, uh, but Paul tells us that there actually is a right answer to the question they're asking. Should we eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? And Paul's answer seems to be, yeah, that's fine, sure, but that's not all he says, you know. He also qualifies that in many ways. Uh, his argument for saying that they could eat is the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Uh, everything in it, it belongs to the Lord. They, this is meat. Matter of fact, back in chapter eighty, he almost seems to be saying it's meat. You know, eating it isn't going to make you better and going to make you worse. It's meat. You know, don't make such a big deal out of it. It's meat. It's from God. God provided it. God created it. God provided it for your nourishment. There's good to it eat it. But again, it's not the only thing he says. But one of the principles that I take from this passage is that our goal is not simply to make sure that we are not anywhere in the vicinity of that which is sinful or as someone had connection with sin. If that's our goal, we we will never accomplish it, right? If we are sent into this world and going to live in this world, there is no way that we are not going to be in the vicinity of sin or that which has come in contact with sin. that's a fantasy to think that we're going to live that way. I will mention in a moment, there is a problem with sin. But this idea that somehow we are going to be completely separate, we are going to form a little Christian island. I've heard the term Christian ghetto before. We are going to form this little isolated place where it's just going to be us living by the values and rules that God has taught us, and that's going to keep us clean and safe, and we're going to be more spiritual because of it. That that's a fantasy, and you've heard it before. One, because if we live on the island, sin is there, uh, so we're not escaping it. But the other reason is because living the life that God calls us to is not just about avoiding sin. It's also about doing the good he calls us to. And if I'm living on that Christian island, I have forgotten my mission. I have forgotten what I am still here to do, and I am not doing it. Matter of fact, if I'm not living in the midst of people, not only you say, well, at least then, you know, I'm not going to participate in the sin. I won't be tempted. I won't do that. But you're also not going to be there to put on display that which is good and celebrate that which is good and point people to that which is good. Because morality is not just about avoiding the bad, it's also about calling good what is good. And both of those are the things that we enter our world to help our world understand. So, I don't think the Christian island is, uh, is our calling. We can't live in our world in such a way we're completely separate from everything that had contact with that which is evil. Principle three. He says, in the exercise of your rights, or I think the principle is there, in the exercise of your rights, be conscious of the effect your behaviors have on those whose relationship with God may be less mature. So even if the choice you're making, you have concluded this is not a sinful choice. I have every right to make this choice. God, this is within the boundaries of what God calls good. I can do this. Paul says, you know what? The, The decision's still not settled. Because now you have to look around at those around you who may not understand as you understand. Those around you who may, you say, well, I can eat this meat sacrifice to idols, but what if my Christian brother who happens to have, not have the same understanding of Scripture I have, maybe is less mature in the faith, what if they believe that eating that meat is actually disobedience to God, it's sin? And they see my example and then choose to go eat the meat even though they still hold to that belief even though by their understanding that is still disobedience to God, but because of my influence, they have now followed me in that behavior, now violating their conscience. Their sin wasn't that they ate meat. Their sin was that they did what they believed was disobedient before God, that they turned their back on God, in this case, to follow your influence, to follow the influence of a man. And he says, even then, even if what you're doing is right, you still have to give thought to the other. What influence will this right behavior possibly have on the people around you? Will they understand it? Do they, is this a disputable matter that maybe will have an influence upon others that you don't want to have? Still have to consider those things. In 8 9, he says it this way Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak, that you don't make others trip in their walk with Christ because of the exercise of what you believe to be right, even if it's right. 1032, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Again, the decision isn't just right or wrong. Even here when it's right, the decision is still, how does it affect the people around me, the people I live this life with? I have to consider. Now, I don't think Paul is saying here that every choice should be made to accommodate every view around you for instance i don't think we are called to always accommodate the christian legalist who just wants to pull us back to rules that god didn't call us to for instance if i go out and mow my yard this afternoon and my neighbor's a christian and thinks it's wrong for me to mow my yard on sunday but i know my christian neighbor actually is pretty firm in that belief and committed to it they're not going to be influenced to go out and mow their yard on sunday they they no way you are going to go mow their yard on Sunday. They're not going to step over what they believe to be right because of my behavior in that case. I don't have a problem with going to mow my yard. Because, again, I don't think I am causing a weaker brother to sin against their conscience. We see that example in Scripture many times. Jesus often did things that the religious people around him objected to. They, they were offended by. It. They called it wrong. But he wasn't causing the weaker brother to turn his back on God. If anything, Jesus was actually, at sometimes by challenging their belief system through his behavior, calling them to look a little harder at God. And was, were these rules, were these decisions truly about their relationship with God? Jesus has a one-on-one conversation with a woman next to a well, a public well, something that they would have clearly judged and religious people around him offended by a woman of questionable character, yet Jesus still entered into that behavior because it loved that woman and I would say even loved those who were watching, even those who were offended by it. Jesus has dinner with people whose business practice were considered incredibly immoral and unethical, the tax collectors. Again, I think there are times when that choice that's still offended actually loved the other, even the one offended because it challenged beliefs that were actually pulling them away from God, not towards God. So, a principle is, again, we have to consider the people around us, even the believers around us, and how our choices will influence their relationship with God. A fourth principle, and this one is not really clearly addressed in the passage 23 to 11.1, but everything that precedes it from 10, 1 to 22 talks about this. Paul sets up this passage by telling us there are some things that are just clearly wrong. There are some things that are sinful. There are boundaries. Paul lays out and he says, you know, the children of Israel and and the the issues they dealt with in their desert wanderings, the, the things they lost, the damage we see that their sin caused the consequences of sin all those things were laid out for us so that we would not make those choices because they are wrong sinful evil choices God is saying there are boundaries there are things that are clearly wrong you should not do in that case he is saying grumbling against God and testing God clearly wrong participating in sexual immorality, clearly wrong. Actually worshiping a false idol and joining into some religious ritual that worships a false idol, absolutely wrong. You may say, well, or the Corinthians may have said, well, even if I go to the temple and I know that that God's not a real God, I know that that God is a false God, I know that this whole thing is foolish that they're doing, but, you know, to get along with people, I'll participate in it, I'll join them in this religious ritual like I'm worshiping this God. And Paul, I think, here is saying, no. That is not a place you join in. That is a place you must separate. Say, even though we know that God is a false God, God actually, Paul actually says that when you join in that worship of that false God, you are participating with demons. That God may not be real, but you are actually, you are worshiping a demon and participating with demons when you join in that practice. There are things that are clearly wrong, that are clearly sin, and we are called to turn away from A final principle, I think that Paul reminds us once again where we started, that we are sent on a mission, 1033. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Ultimately, Paul ends this discussion by saying, ultimately, I am trying to figure all this out. How do I seek the good of others? How do I live in this world well in a way that honors God and loves my neighbor? How do I do this? I'm trying to figure this out because I have been sent on this mission so that many may be saved. That's why I live in this tension. He says in chapter 9 where he's using the issue of, of his rights as a minister of the gospel, his right to be paid. And he says, I'm choosing to set those aside. In 9.12 he says, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. That is at the center of our calling. That's why we're sent into the world. And it is messy, right? It is messy figuring out how to do that well. We will disagree at times about how to do that well. Because it is not always a clear answer to those questions. How we sometimes even we say, Well, that's wrong, but how close do I get to that so that I be close to them? Uh, Where do I step away? Where do I step in? These are hard decisions that we have to make. But Paul argues we we enter that tension, we deal with that messiness because we are called to come into this world, witness for Christ that others might believe so that they might be saved. And that is messy work. Two dangers that I've been talking about that I just want to highlight real quick. One is a separatism that prevents the Christian from drawing close to others. If I'm gonna be a witness to others, I need to be close enough that they they see my love, that they hear my words, that they see my life committed to Christ, that they even see the community of Christ's followers that I'm a part of. I need to be close enough to have a witness. But if drawing close means that in some ways I have to pervert and set aside the message, the truth, well I've gotten close. But the message that I now get to present is not the true message. The other side, you know, separatism could be a, a danger, but the other side is syncretism. The other side is, again, I, I am close. We're with you. We're doing all these things. But as I said, the message has gotten somehow perverted. You know, it's, it's been distorted. For the sake of getting a hearing from you, both matter. We have to be with a separatism that says we can't be in contact with the people of this world, I think, forgets our calling. But a syncretism, a somehow blending of the things of the world with the Christian faith in such a way that the Christian faith gets, faith gets lost, truth gets lost. And again, we've not fulfilled our mission either. We are called to live in this very difficult tension. And I think it's actually meant to be Tough. I think this mission we're sent on, it's why Jesus is praying to the Father for us. Because Jesus recognizes this is a difficult mission that you've been sent on. We need the Father's help to do this. And it's what Christ for us is asking his Father to do. To protect us, to empower us, to go with us, to send a spirit to guide us. Because this is going to be tough. We ought to do this with prayer. We ought to do this in conversation with one another through community. These are tough decisions. But as I read this, one of the things that just kept striking me again and again was, man, we just need to quit spending so much time and effort focusing on protecting our rights. There are times our rights are not a violation of loving the other, right? There are times that you can focus on your own interest, and it in no way violates the interest of others and concern for others. But it just shouldn't be our first priority. Our first priority is this mission we've been sent on that others might believe in Jesus, that we might build up one another for Christ. Our rights are okay, but let's not move them up to the top of the list. The second thing is let's just not start dividing over disputable matters. These are hard decisions. There are things that are not clear. That's why Paul's having this discussion and laying out these principles. There are things that are clear. We can say that is wrong. Scripture seems quite clear on that. There are disputable matters where we get to disagree and be together on mission while we disagree. That is going to happen if we are in this world but not of this world. I want to leave you with Christ's words. Here's Christ's words about the mission he sent us on. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything God has commanded. You hear our mission? Make disciples. Teach them everything God has commanded. Live in that tension in this real world with people who don't know him. And man, if we do that, we will have to be people of prayer. Return to God. We will have to depend on one another if we're going to do that. That's a tough mission. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful uh, that we don't do this on our own. I said, Father, I'm so thankful that, uh, that you have responded to that prayer of Jesus, that you give us strength and guidance. Uh, Father, you protect us, uh, that you have guided us when, when we are face-to-face with the evil one. And Father, we can count on your strength and your protection in those times. I pray, Father, that we would not become so foolish as to believe that we need to step away from you and figure this out all ourselves so that we can be effective in this world. Father, I pray that we would depend upon you, even when it seems like foolishness to us, that we would follow, we would trust you. And, Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who carry your message well. In your blessed name, amen.